0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the
2: we just hit a million orders stage.
1: No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special
3: Welcome back to episode number 98 of the Outdoor Drive podcast. This is your boy, East Coast Trev, and this is Steve. What up, Steve, man? So pumped to be back here and yeah, finally man. recording especially something a little bit different this this episode we're going to talk about uh some of the offshore fishing from the west coast and the east coast but a little bit different kind of like on the commercial side
2: yeah it, it was really interesting to listen to and, I, and i'll apologize in advance so i actually got called away early in this episode to go handle some work stuff so trev did a killer job handling That's a lie. this whole thing completely I, lie. Hey, it's your story. (laughs) Tell it how you want. But, uh, I I was able to catch tidbits on the background and man, that information that he put out, I would have never had a clue. You know, it's not my realm. That's more your realm. But even then he threw out some stuff that was like, you know, you really got to sit and think about.
3: Yeah. And you know, the the thing with Jesse is, Jesse's kind of been through it all. I mean, as he goes, goes through and he's in the radio talk world. He was, you know, part of the Northeast, you know, alliance with, you know, kind of regulations and the fishing industry and pro staffed, and so on and so forth. And then just kind of chase those dreams as we talk about all the time, you know, going out there and, and, and being the, you know, the wolf instead of the sheep and, and kind of, you know, taking that leap, you know, arms back head first and, and going out and doing those things. And, became a commercial fisherman and went out, out to California and was a dungeon crab fisherman. So he's going to go through all that in this episode, but uh, it's definitely a little twist to, to something that we really, you know, we're kind of diving into, you know?
2: Yeah. It's a realm that neither of us really know anything about. So no, there ain't many places you're going to hear that other than right here.
3: Right. Exactly. And I mean, like I know the commercial fishing side of it on the rod and reel, but, you know trapping and or i guess we would call it trapping right because he does lobsters and crabs and then netting the stock eyes and in uh in alaska it's
2: kind of cool or washington basically where you get your lobster and your sushi meat is from him right just just to clarify this is where that fresh stuff comes to your plate when you go to the restaurant
3: and the nice thing with jesse too he kind of he dives into a little bit of everything when it comes to commercial fishing and kind of tells the truths of it. And, uh, you know, some of the good things of it also, I mean, there is not always bad. I mean, you guys read and watch these documentaries and stuff and kind of see what's going on. So Jesse will kind of tool on into that. So really excited about this episode. So just kind of listen along and, um, you'll get to see some really cool stuff in here. So, or see, listen to,
2: a lot of. I was cool going to say, man, you, you do some recording while I wasn't paying attention, no.
3: <laughs> you, you, you. which is, is one of those things. I mean, we, we kind of got away from the video side of it for a reason though. Cause I mean, we're pushing on 100 here. I mean, like I said, this is number 98. We have two more and we're at episode 100 and got some pretty good changes. Um, if you guys have some feedback, we kind of dropped a little hint of one of the things. If you guys have listened to it, uh, let us know your thoughts on it. We definitely want to hear some of the thoughts of some of the things that we can change. We did change, um, and just kind of listen along and kind of reach out to us. Don't be afraid. We want to hear all the things and the feedback that you guys got going on. And we want to make a better show for everyone that listens along and make a better place for everybody. For sure. So with that, I want to thank a couple of guys. Um, first I want to start off with one of the most important things that we have going on here at the outdoor drive podcast. And that is the Hunter box club. Um, we've been very blessed to be part of it and partner up with these guys this month. Um, and it's something you guys don't want to miss out on. There's links, uh, in our website. If you go onto our website and you hit, uh, that's the and you go into the partner section underneath the Hunter box. You click right on that. They're all live links. So click onto that there and you can claim your free box um, is a monthly subscription. Um, you'll get our t-shirt that we actually designed with the help of Clay Thurman. Um, thanks to him and kind of putting the word in our ear uh, about that idea. Yeah. The good idea that he had, and we kind of made it come to fruition. Uh, it's it's Bambi's mom was a management dough t-shirt And, uh, I will sneak in there that you get a, also a koozie, the outdoor drive podcast koozie with the same logo on that also. Um, and then there's two, there could be one or two other surprise gifts inside that box. If you guys haven't checked it, we did a box opening here, um, kind of what you get and, uh, that, so the link is in there, go on there, subscribe, you get your first box for $5 and that's just the shipping on that. So, uh, get on over to the, uh, the hundred boxclub.com. So. It's really cool. And we're really excited to be able to partner up with those guys.
2: Hell yeah. Well, and on top of that, we're we're going to have some new things coming uh, after episode 100. Some, we'll, we'll say new design work and uh, a little bit of new merch that we may slow some, some limited stuff out there. So keep your eyes peeled. Uh, we're going to be mixing it up. Stay tuned.
3: Absolutely. Uh, also... Gator Outdoors, GatorOutdoors.com. Use the promo code OUTDOORDRIVE25. Watch out for those guys because they got some really cool stuff coming. A big change at, for them also, just like us in episode 100, but uh, also a big change for them uh, in their whole entire rebranding. So go and check them out, out uh, GatorOutdoors.com. Nor'easter game calls, get them in close. Uh, the custom game calls, we still have a bunch on, on sale on their website. For the uh, these Fox Elderboro, um, the outdoor drive series with the Mexican Coca Bola wood, um, in the tube. So, go and check those out. A little video about those on our Facebook page, also, so you guys can kind of tune those in. Probably one of the best grunt calls you could possibly ever buy. You can go from that swamp buck all the way up to that bleat and fawn. Um, timber tumblers timber tumblers.com for your custom tumblers and dog dishes and whatever else that he has going on over there on his Etsy page. So go on and check them boys out out on the limb. MFG.com out on the limb, Matt Garris making custom stands. He's got that hush. Now the car sticks, your, uh, the reach, all of his uh, really cool custom filming gear. So go and check him out, out on the limb. MFG.com last, but not least, probably one of my favorite is the boys over at latitude outdoors. Uh, They're two part panel, um,
0: the method saddle,
3: two. the method two, and then their, uh, classic, um, which is a single panel saddle, probably light. They, they do have the metalist system, probably one of the best saddles on the market for what it is. I've been kind of messing around with it. And I know Steven has been too. Uh, their belt system. It stays up. I went for probably half a mile, three quarters of a mile hike with mine going and setting in cameras and so on and so forth. And uh putting in some presets and I didn't have no problem. And I've had no, problems no with diaper drags. <laughs> no, man. And I've always had that. I mean, you guys all see it in all yep. my videos. I have a lot of problems with that. And it's kind of solved those problems for me. So get on over there, latitudeoutdoors.com and get yours and uh get up in that tree with that thing, man, and test it out. Really excited for this season. And they just came out with a new back brace on top of the already. So could you imagine how comfortable you could be in that stand with with uh with that
2: it's gonna make those four o'clock in the morning naps in the tree really nice
3: i'm looking forward to it
2: i'm looking forward to ohio honestly <laughs> with those things because them all day sits dude you throw the back brace in there you can literally turn and lay against the tree completely off the platform and sleep
3: i'm i'm really looking forward to it yeah it's gonna be something <laughs> else it is i i this season is is one that I mean, both of us have been like stupid busy with a lot of stuff going on and to go out there and season only be 60 days away. Can you imagine that 60 days away and we're going to be at season?
2: Yeah, dude. I, I that's not almost long. feel underprepared this year. Like It's been so swamped, so crazy. Like yesterday, I literally sat down for the first time this season and put my pack together and started testing and playing you know, how do I pack this? How do I configure it with this new backpack? You know, and, and just, and I was like, you know, I was doing this stuff two months earlier last year. Like I I had my deer nailed down. I had the trees I wanted set in ready, you know, so I am that guy this year. I'm the guy that's held back way too long. And, you know, I'm getting after it now as much as I can to try to get prepared, ready to go for opening weekend. But that's thing, man, you just got to make time. So don't be me make time, get your gear, go practice with it, be safe and configure it. So it's simple. When you can do it in the dark, you're ready to go.
3: But I think that I I'm, I'm with you on that, Steve. Like I'm not prepared at all. I have very little cameras out. I, you know, it's okay though. I think I'm kind of looking forward to it because I was so set in my ways of doing things in the past years and, and like studying everything I needed to do. I knew what trees like you, what I, where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do, everything like that. I think I'm, I'm going to kick it back a little bit and go and enjoy it. I know um, our man, Mike Salter, which he's trying to chime in right now, but one of the things he's, you know, he's having a tough time with having two kids right now and not being able to go out there and he's kind of getting a little frustrated. And one of the things I said to him was I said, Mike, I said, go out there and enjoy it, man. Have fun. Like who cares if you don't have cameras out there, you say it's going to be a tough year for you, but who cares, man, go and hunt like you did when you were a kid. Enjoy it. You know, I, we all kind of get in that, that realm and that trench where we think differently. Like we're like, Oh, we need to know where every deer is. And then, you know, like last year I kind of lived by the cameras. Screw that, man, go out there and have fun. Enjoy it. Whatever comes by comes by. And when you stop caring is when you do the best. I feel like, yeah, well, (laughs) Once again, going back to Ohio, you
2: were ready to shoot that six point. You didn't care. And look what right. happened. <laughs> exactly. And those
3: things happen. So why don't we let Mike uh, Mike Salter tune in here and uh, kind of get that news for the cruise going.
4: Hey, everyone. Mike here with some news for your cruise. We're going to kick this one off in Michigan where the DNR Wolf Management Advisory Council held its first meeting. Wolf management in Michigan is guided by the state's 2015 plan, which is currently being updated. The council will be giving advice on the new plan uh, in May of 2022, and recommendations from the council could include lethal and non-lethal options. The first meeting heard debate from both sides of the aisle, but the majority uh, in attendance were in favor of wolf management. And it sounds like there will be several more meetings before recommendations are finalized. So those in Michigan who want to see wolf hunting in the future, They should submit comments to the advisory council to push those recommendations for the new revised plan. Uh, Now off to Illinois, and some firearm law changes affecting hunters. The biggest changes are to the FOID cards, uh, which is the firearm owner identification card. Anyone who possesses a firearm or ammunition must have uh, a FOID card, and it must be on your possession uh, while hunting. Now, there has been a serious backlog for renewals of the FOID cards in the state for some time, and the recent change gives FOID card holders uh, the option to submit fingerprints uh, with the Illinois State Police, and in exchange for that, the FOID card renewal process will become automatic. Uh, As part of this, a FOID database will be created and available to all officers, so they will now know whether a person has a FOID card or if one has been revoked. Uh, Additionally, uh, the new law has implemented a background check requirement for all gun sales in the state as well. So some big changes there. Now off to Vermont, where Perros Gun Shop and Police Supplies has opened Vermont's first indoor shooting range in Waterbury. The range has 10 lanes, uh, 25 yards each, and you can make reservations or come in as a walk-in to use the range. There will be a member, uh, member packages, uh, as well as training and coaching available uh, at the facility. You will also be able to try any firearms on the range before purchasing for $10. So a great opportunity to do some shooting uh, on those rainy days in Vermont. Now to Ohio, uh, where the DNR Division of Wildlife has proposed to reduce the 2022 spring turkey season Uh, limit from two bearded birds to one statewide. This limit would remain in place until trends in reproductive success improve. Wildlife officials have stated that the population has declined due to several years of below-average reproductive success, Uh, but preliminary numbers in 2021 show some improvement in the poult numbers. There have been no changes proposed to the fall turkey hunting season. Uh, The DNR is accepting comments on the proposed changes, which you can find by googling Ohio DNR proposed rule changes or reach out to me directly uh, for a direct link to that because it's quite long. So now let's move on to some records. Um, First, some bow fishing records. The first one is Matt Newling, who shot a Missouri State record, Big Head Carp, which tipped the scales at 125.5 pounds. Uh, Next, we have Steve Harris Jr., who shot a 92-pound paddlefish, which measured 67 inches long and had a 37-inch girth in Montana. Although Montana doesn't categorize record fish, the massive paddlefish has been recognized as a new world record by the American Bowfishing Association. And Lisa Stengel of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, has been certified as the new International Underwater Spearfishing Association record holder for Pacific Halibut. Uh, in the women's sling pole spear category. Lisa shot the 71.4 pound halibut while free diving in 46 degree water just south of Homer, Alaska which in my opinion is pretty badass. Um, And lastly, a 43 year old Michigan record has fallen. Uh, Luis Martinez had never fished for salmon in his life and reeled in a 47.86 pound king salmon on Lake Michigan. The 19 year old Uh, catch bested the decades-old state record by almost two pounds, which is pretty incredible. So congrats to all the new record holders on some truly great fish. Uh, With that, as always, if you have any news to send to me, uh, please reach out on Facebook at Mike Salter or on Instagram at bearded underscore bowhunter21. And with that, enjoy the rest of your ride.
3: All right. Don't forget to send Mike... Salter, some news. Check him out on Instagram, bearded something. Bow hunter, bow hunter, bearded bearded, bearded bow underscore
2: bow hunter, hunter twenty one. Twenty
3: one. So go and send him some news over there, or Mike Salter on Facebook. Let him know what's going on in your local area. The season is right around the corner, so help out, Mike. Appreciate it, Mike. Always digging deep and helping us out, man. You got a lot of stuff going on, and hopefully, you have a great season. So why don't we get over to Jesse? I'm um, I'm ready to hear about this and and kind of spread the word and. So everybody knows where, where some of these fish come from and what you're putting on your plate.
2: Me too, man. I'm going to be right there with the listeners tuning in for the first time on this one. So I can't wait to hear how the whole conversation went. All right, man. All right. Here we go. <laughs> nice shot. Here
5: comes a shooter. Shooter. Big button.
3: Big buck. X, 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 All right, we're back with our good friend, Jesse Roach. How are you, Jesse? Good, man. How are you? Hanging in there, bro. I hear a little bit of wind in the background. You on the water right now? I am on the Kennebec River up here in Bath,
1: Maine, which is uh, my next port that I will be fishing on the uh, lobsters up, up this way. So looking forward to that. Not looking forward to the cold winter, but it's Maine. You take it. (laughs) (laughs)
3: that's awesome man why don't you introduce yourself a little bit uh tell everyone who you are where you're from and what you do oh my name is jesse roach i'm from connecticut originally growing up on long island Sound. um
1: and you know the sports fishing did some pro staffing with ocean kayak and hobie and uh some of the local fishing uh suppliers in the area which was a lot of fun had a good time doing that then, uh, I came from a radio background. So I actually had a fishing radio show myself for a little while there, um, on commercial radio. And then, uh, it was kind of like an NPR for, for fishing, you know, cause the big complaint was everyone asked where to fish. I was like, well, I should do a show and tell you how to fish. And that way you don't have to ask where to fish. So, um, we touched a lot upon, um, you know, uh, anything from regulations to, uh, how to really work with tides, full moons, um, barometric stuff, you know, different baits, presentations. Uh, the whole goal is pretty much just to let people know how to do it and then they can go and figure it out themselves without bothering everyone else and taking them with them to their secret spots. So, uh, yeah, that was fun for a while. And then, uh, on that show, I had uh, some guests on from deadliest catch and, uh, I had always wanted to take it to the next level, to go commercial fishing and um i actually I, I got put on i was supposed to get on one in the bering sea but uh at that time i was 41 and that's left for kids i'm also banging ice off hauls and and all that fun stuff so i ended up going to uh, california to go dungeness crab fishing which actually physically is more work than the the king crab stuff but um a lot less weather You're in t-shirt weather out in the pacific in the bay area up through northern california which is uh, a really cool spot and um it was a highliner crab boat i had gotten on so you know it was non-stop and we're putting 33,000 pounds of crab on in 20 hours and wow and um it really tuned me up to you know fishing a highliner you know real successful operation and um and I think sustainability is important to me too. There's a lot of fisheries out there that do a lot of damage and, and hurt the ecosystem, but the crabbing really wasn't like that. We didn't get much of a bycatch at all. Maybe an occasional cod or something in the trap. And then, uh, it's all very regulated with sizing and no females and, and you know, they keep the population healthy. Um, and it can be very lucrative. Basically when I picked the fishing, I basically went to the most expensive food, seafood in the in the seafood case and said, Oh, I better fish for that. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, you stay on expensive meat and you, you, get better money. So, um, yeah, I did the crabbing and, uh, and then, uh, got into some salmon fishing in Bristol Bay, Alaska, which actually just got back a few days ago from this season. And, uh, I just kind of been bouncing around just doing, you know, kind of between the West coast and new England and Alaska is kind of fishing my way
3: around. Absolutely. That's so awesome, and I love watching your journey through Facebook kind of like where you're going and what you got going on and especially, you know, being a local boy, like you said here and then going to Alaska, I mean, uh, to California and then Alaska and all the other crazy stuff that you've been kind of getting yourself into.
1: Thanks. Yeah. I think it was set up perfect for a you know, single, uh, didn't have a girlfriend time, which, you know, that doesn't work too well in my industry. Um, and uh my son had just uh, become an adult i was a single dad with him since he was 11 and then when he turned 18 he got into the tree service and, and making some good money so it allowed me to kind of do my thing um and now he's actually a commercial fisherman he's out of gloucester down in mass and he's on a really successful lobster boat so pretty proud of that and uh, he's getting stuff done on his own that way so yeah i mean if you, if you have the opportunity and you don't have you're not bogged down with a bunch of things you know um any sacrifice you know having a dog is tough i feel like having a dog it's hard to do when you're running all around the country um and girlfriends and and having a lot of possessions because they got to get stored or haul them across country so yeah yeah it just worked out for me and uh it's been a fun ride, that's for sure.
3: What kind of like made you want to dive into doing commercial fishing from recreational fishing?
1: Um, well, recreational fishing cost me a fortune, you know. I mean, <laughs> even if staff, I mean it doesn't matter. You're spending so much money on fishing. It's like, well, I'd rather just get paid to do it. Right. Um, and at the time, I really had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, you know, I, I think physically, I knew I could handle it. Um, I mean, done a lot more physical stuff for a lot less money um at that time anyways in my head so i figured well i, I think i can handle it yeah, i don't get seasick and you know I, was, I knew i was good for that part of it at least and then learning uh the industry you know that just comes with getting on the boat um so yeah yeah i mean it, it was a, it was an adventure that's for sure and uh, you know my uh gut was in my throat you know getting into it because i didn't know what was going to happen you know i it, you know, I just heard stories and, and kinda went along with it and then half the crews are half my age, you know, being forty one, getting into it, you know, a lot of these guys are like eighteen to you know, their early twenties. So it's not really an older guy's game. Um but uh it's kept me young, it's kept me physical and, and I'm really grateful for that too.
3: Absolutely. So what does what does a, a normal day insist for you? Like what how does it start and what kinda of, take us kind of through what your day day consists of. Well, uh, on the
1: Dungeness crab, um, it's a long process. So basically you, you show up a month before the season starts and you work for free, uh, on gear work. So you're putting the traps together, shots of, coils of line, uh, buoys, um, the boat, you know, lots of scraping, painting, uh, hydraulic hoses need to be changed and, and just a lot of various maintenance. Um, so that's basically your first month, um, on being on site in which case I was lucky enough I got to just sleep on the boat so I didn't really have to go find a place to live um and then so let's say that's October 1st so then say November 15th the season is scheduled to start but then you have fun new issues that they have like the whales. so if there's too many whales in the water they stop you from fishing and then um with when the ocean's warming up, uh, there's more algae bloom and more you know bad stuff in the water. So the crabs will get what's called domoic acid in them. And the government um, will test the crabs because the fishery is run by the health department in California. So basically, you have to go through them just to go fishing. And then after that, there could be strikes because if there's not enough meat in the shell, the buyers will want to pay you enough to even take your boat out. So the November 15th start can sometimes turn to December 15th start. So it's always kind of up in the air for the start. But once you do get fishing, they have an opener day and, uh, you, you basically dump all your traps, uh, various permits. We had a 500 pot permit. The traps are about 160 pounds loaded and you have to hand, you're dealing with them by hand. You're stacking them seven high. They're about forty inches around 18 inches deep. Um, and they're single traps. You're not doing trawls like in, in lobsters is a lot of long line trawls, um, which isn't the case with the crab. And then when the opener happens, that's your time to make the money. Um, cause there's a lot of crab on the bottom. And then as boats, you know, start loading, um, the crab starts to disappear. So basically you're working around the clock. I think the longest I've been up constantly working is 63 hours, which, uh, It wasn't fun. I mean, (laughs) you end up getting delirious and, you know, I'm on deck thinking I'm smelling someone cooking steak on the grill, you know, it's just, you kind of go in a robot mode and, 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 um, and, and until it's done, you're forced to do it because if you don't, uh, other guys are going to suck them all up and and you're going to lose out because basically 80% of the money you make crabbing is made in the first four weeks. After that, you're scratch fishing. Um, yeah, just kind of like and you get more breaks then then you're looking at you get three days off You go haul gear for a couple of days and take some other days off, but it's all about the opener um, That's where a lot of the injuries and deaths happen. You know, you're just up so long and um, You're tired and and that's when things go wrong. And unfortunately in that industry, you know, you lose people every year um, Every year I was in it, you know, we lost, I lost a friend of mine uh, I had met Docs and he taught me some knots when I first started it was I remember it was a Super Bowl Sunday uh, 2018 and we were heading in and his boat was coming out. We waved to him and 10 minutes later he was gone and a stack of traps, uh, fell over and him and the other guy were under him. One guy got the buoy and he didn't, and, uh, he was never seen again. So, you know, it, it's, it's a part of it. Um, unfortunately, but, uh, that's what you sign up for. You know, you kind of make your peace before you go out every time. Say, I love you to a lot more people. You would have prior to that. I think <laughs> you don't know. Uh, But it's, it's, you know, that's rare. I don't want to make it sound like that happens all the time. It doesn't, but it does happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, but the trade off, I mean, you're seeing the California coast from the water, which is, if you uh, you haven't been to California or just the West Coast in general, it's so much more dramatic than the East Coast, you know, I mean, uh, where we are, especially Long Island area, it takes a while to get to deep water, you know, to get to 200 feet or whatever, you know, you got to go out a little ways. I I went out in Trinidad in California in my kayak. I was in two thousand feet of water and under half a mile from shore. Wow, that's incredible! uh, Yeah, you got gray whales around you. Um, Everything's just you know you're in the deep water. Um, And then even transiting, we were going from Eureka, California, down to Bodega Bay, and and we were we were literally in five thousand fathoms of water. A six feet, so you know, five times six. You know, it's, it's thirty thousand feet of water. It's, wow, that's that's pretty pretty weird to think about <laughs> when you're out yeah. there on that. That's
3: um, not even like but, our canyons. Yeah. Our canyons aren't even that deep.
1: Oh no, yeah, it's, it's extreme. It's 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 a whole other ball game. But even if you go up to Puget Sound um, in Washington, you know, Puget Sound, the Strait of Juan de Fuca, and, and you know, it kind of it it tucks in you've got areas of river that are probably about as wide maybe a little wider than the connecticut river at its widest point in the mouth and that's two thousand feet of water um it's it's really a whole nother ball game out there uh, when it comes to oceanic conditions and what you're dealing with on a daily basis where i think uh we're used to more chop you know Mm -hmm. uh, and fast currents Um, especially long Island sound where out there you're looking at rollers, you know, you're 12 to 20 foot rollers every 10 seconds on a nice day, you know? So, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a whole other ball game.
3: That's crazy. What is, what is some of like the, the worst seas that you've been in on the West coast?
1: Well, I just got off of them. Actually. I I, literally, I think, uh, this past season in Bristol Bay, it's the Bering seaside of Alaska. Um, it was just one of those years. I, I don't know if it was La Nina or whatever they call it, but there was just storm after storm coming off the Aleutian islands and Dutch Harbor in that way. And just, just shoving them right in at us. So we're talking westerlies of 40 miles an hour with, with eight, you know, six to eight foot waves every single day. And we're on a 32 foot boat. Um, not a very big boat and, and that stuff. And, and, we don't get off the boat when you're salmon fishing. You basically, once you launch, you're on because the tides in Alaska are plus plus or minus 16 to 20 feet. So, um, they don't have like slips and you know, floating docks or any of that. So, once you launch, you're on that little boat for the entire season. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a rough one, it got beat up, that's for sure. Um, and some of the rougher stuff that I've seen, I mean, people uh, five boats went down. Um, this year, uh, I know friends of mine, both they've had their, their windshields got smashed in by the waves. I mean, we were taking green water on our, we were basically submarining the boat, <laughs> you know, we were out there and, uh, there's definitely some interesting times. Wow.
3: That's um, crazy. And that was salmon fishing in Alaska. Yep.
1: Uh, yep. Salmon fish in Bristol Bay. And you can't wait. Um, it's not like, you know, if you're lobstering and it's a bad day, you just, you know, you just don't go that day. But with the salmon, you have an, uh, a very finite run that's taking place. You know, once the fish start coming, that's your time to catch them. And if you miss a day, you know, that's, that's, you know, five, to 10,000 pounds, you're not going to get back because when it's over, it's over. Um, you know, and, and so you, you just have to be out there in all of the weather all the time. It doesn't matter. You got to be fishing or else you're, you're wasting your time out there. So, um, Yeah, that's the one problem with with, uh, the salmon is (laughs) you just have to go. It doesn't matter.
3: And and what is the process of catching the salmon? Like, are you long lining or how do you? No, what we
1: have is a a, a drift gill net. So basically it is um, 175 fathoms of of, um, floating line. And you have corks, the little floats the top line and then you have the lead line which that's the way the uh, net drapes down and that's about 11 feet in depth so it's not a terribly deep net um and then you basically you're driving around you're looking for jumpers because uh, they like to jump still up in the air as <laughs> the pun intended as far as why they jump no one really knows i see a lot of sea lice on them coming in so i'm wondering if they're slapping them off but some people say they jump in the air to see where they are to get to the correct river and and all sorts of weird theories, but, uh, yeah. So basically you look for the jumpers because usually where there's jumpers, there's, there's a pretty good biomass underneath them. Um, and then you try to figure out with the sandbars and the current, where they'd be heading. And then you try to get ahead of them. And then you put out your net kind of perpendicular to where you're seeing them come. And, uh, you know, you wait for the splashes and then you'll, you'll hold your set for a little while. Um, there's district lines too, because, Uh, the mouths of every river, you can only go out a certain uh, distance because you don't want to intercept fish that are going to other places to spawn. Um, So they limit you that way. So when you have an outgoing tide and your net is getting full and you're heading for the line, you you better get it in quick because there's usually skiffs and helicopters and airplanes just hoping you go over that line and they're, they've got a nice $10,000 fine waiting for you every single time you do it. So, um, and then you have an incoming tide, you can start on the line, and then you're just moving into the district. So, it's a little easier. You know, you're a little more at ease with picking the fish out of the net. But let's say your net is loading, you got 5,000 pounds of fish in the net, you're drifting at four knots, and you're an eighth of a mile from the line. So, you better pick pretty fast. <laughs> so, or else you're going to have trouble. Now, if you can't make it, you have to do what's called round hauling where you're just uh pulling the the net in by hand with all the fish in it and just throwing it right all on the deck because uh, you know basically you get that line there can't be one thread of net touching the water uh once once you get there um it can be hectic sometimes and then you have the whole fishing the line in general where if you've ever seen any of those bristol bay shows they're just. You know we're talking hundreds of boats within feet of each other putting out 175 fathoms worth of net within feet of each other um it can be a bumper bumper cart so um, <laughs> although now the boats now the boats are all eight hundred thousand dollars so if you touch one of them they're going to sue you so <laughs> you don't go bumping into boats as much as they used to back in the old days but um, it does still happen you know there'd be a tight area where the fish are coming in in the strand and all the boats want to get on it and, and you know, there's only so much real estate to run your net in and you know, there's bumps and bruises here and there between the boats. Usually you hope it's not aluminum versus fiberglass. Those are the two boats you have out there and it usually doesn't go too well for the fiberglass guy.
3: Wow. That's crazy. And you're in cold water at that point too, right? Uh, yeah, it's about 50. Okay. Um, I
1: actually jumped into the Bering Sea a couple of years ago. It, it was it was about eighty the air temperature, and it was just so hot. I mean, it, I, yeah, I I hate fishing in hot weather, but so I thought it'd be a good idea to jump in. And I'll tell you, I was walking on water like baby Jesus getting out of there. I mean, <laughs> I, I climbed over the other guy getting out. I mean, <laughs> you hit that water. Man, <laughs> you know, all you want to do is get out of the water and wonder why you did it in the first place. But hey, just to say, Oh, I jumped in the Bering sea. Okay, cool. Did it. Never doing it again. <laughs> That's crazy. And the tides, the, I mean, the tides are going like, you have to do it as slack tide if you're going to do something like that. But I mean, you're talking 16 foot to 20 foot up and downs and it's like, uh, maybe six to eight knots. The water's moving. Wow. Um, So, I mean, you're basically taking Long Island Sound and putting it on steroids. Um,
3: It's it's like being in the race. It's like jumping in the race in a moon tide.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it it never stops. It's just that's what you get in and out. And you have to be careful because if you bump, you know, uh, your bottom on a sandbar and you get stuck on that sandbar, you can be stuck there for the tide um and if you happen to catch it on the wrong edge and your boat's kind of lopsided on that sandbar you can flip it right over you know once the water leaves because i mean i've taken some pictures of it you can see all the boats floating around in the water and then you know six hours later they're all sitting on dry beach so it's um, it's pretty extreme that's for sure wow
3: that's nuts man and and then now now you're up lobstering in maine um, Back up in Maine, Uh, I was in Cape Ann and Mass
1: out of Gloucester and Rockport, uh, lobster down there, my son, was down there with him. And then uh, I ended up uh, doing the one thing that stops fishermen from traveling around the country is to get a girlfriend. So I I got a girlfriend from, uh, and it was funny because we met 27 years ago uh, when we were teenagers up here on an island in Maine. And, uh, she found me over the winter and kind of been together ever since. So, um, pretty cool. You know, that's awesome. Uh,
3: Congratulations. That worked out.
1: Thanks. Yeah. So, um, and then I said, okay, well, I'm not going to move until after Alaska. Cause if she can survive a month and a half or two of me being gone and things are still good. Okay. Well, I guess I'll move North. So, Um, yeah, heading up to Maine now and here and, uh, jumping on a couple boats and, and, um, that's the thing too. If anyone's interested in commercial fishing, um, there is a job for everybody. Uh, these captains cannot find help to save their lives. Um, it's really, uh, a tough situation and and it's a sad situation because you're looking at the generation, just not interested in carrying on. And, um, there's risk involved, obviously getting involved in, in, getting permits that might be taken away by the government at some point, you know, or, or quota cut down and it's a risky thing, but easily, you know, even since I've gotten into it, which is very recently, we still saw a lot of young guys that were interested in giving it a shot or at least going out there. And, and now you cannot find anyone. Um, and it, it's really too bad because they're missing out on, on a really, good thing if if they're into that kind of thing you know it's pretty good money for the work you're doing
3: and and to be honest is is a lot of people don't understand how important commercial fishing is to you know to everybody i mean like that's where the food comes from and people don't realize that
1: yeah and i think that you know that's a whole nother thing but you know it's a a mess Um, you know just the other day i was in gloucester and gloucester is the makes the most money out of any port in this country. Um, and I'm in, I'm in the Shaws, the grocery store, and I'm looking in their seafood case and all I see is Norwegian farm salmon, uh, haddock from Iceland, mackerel from Iceland, uh, cod from Iceland. And I think, you know, this is Gloucester. We have more haddock than, than you can fish. I mean, got, uh, the mackerel are thick. Um, and, and there's plenty of cod, um, which, you know, that would be argued by Noah, but they're, they're there. Um, and yet these seafood cases are filled with foreign fish, uh, farm fish that hurt the environment, um, and, and natural spawning runs. Um, and so you get those, like that sea spirit, as I was talking about, um, and they'll try to say, oh, there's, no, there's not going to be fish by 2040, or, or you know, they're showing video of this atrocious practices um, that are going on. But the, the weird thing about that show, in that movie, is that there was they showed zero U.S. fisheries in that in that documentary. Not one piece of video, a tidbit of information, came from a U.S. wild caught fishery. Um, and I think that's where people really need to see differences in. Now, yeah, these big super trawlers are are bad, you know, um, and we're seeing it in all sorts of situations. We just saw it in the Northeast when it came to the the Manhattan with the the bunker um, Mm -hmm. with what was going on with super trawlers down south. And then, you know, in turn, we saw changes with the bluefish, with the stripers. Um, So that had to be addressed. In Alaska and Washington, you get these pollock trawlers that are sucking up a bunch of uh, halibut and ground fish like rockfish and wing cod and, and other things that, uh, smaller operations like longliners uh, or rod and reel guys, uh, you know, they depend on, on a lot of that quota, but once these draggers suck them all up, well, there goes the fish and there goes the quota. So it kind of, uh, hinders local owner operator fishermen who are not destroying the bottom of the ocean And who are doing things sustainably, um, but they're the lowest hanging fruit. So they're the ones that get clipped because the government would rather control four big boats instead of a hundred little ones. Um, And the four big boats come from companies that can afford to pay new regulations or observers or whatever the government may throw at at us as an industry that we then have to turn around and pay for. Um, So there is detrimental fishing. But now you take the lobstering, which is similar to the crab where I was saying, where, where you're just taking measured uh, you know, species, you're releasing females, you're notching females, and, and we're seeing really good lobster numbers too, from Cape Ann uh, on up in the main. And um, so it's proven to be pretty sustainable. The salmon, that uh, this is just actually a record year for us, is almost uh, almost 46 million fish returning to spawn this year, um, which is most in recorded history. And they've been recording since 1846. And there's lots to be said about that. Um, it's an actual science based fishery. We, we can really get behind and believe it. And how that works is we'll all be out there ready to fish. And, um, the the and game have escapement towers, observation towers, sonar up river. So they're looking for a certain amount of escapement of fish to get up and once they start seeing the numbers they're looking for, then they allow us to fish. So let's say in the beginning, they'll they'll give the fish the first two hours of the incoming tide to head upriver, and they'll let us fish the last four. Um, and, and by spreading those openers out throughout the season, you're spreading the biodiversity and the genes of the salmon. So you're not getting one big push and it's over. You're getting a spread in biodiversity throughout the whole summer of fish coming in by controlling us. Um, to stop us from fishing to allow escapement for spawning. So, um, that number is a big number. It's a good number. And, uh, it, you know, it's one that we're really proud of that we're working together with fishing game and scientists to keep a sustainable fishery going because it's not just for us either. You're talking about a huge native population that are using this for substance fishing. Um, you're, you're talking about uh, villages that, you know, this is what they're eating over the winter. So not only does fishing game have us in mind and spawning fish in mind, they also have the, the native culture, uh, you know, to which this goes back, you know, a thousand or more years. So, um, it, it's really to be a part of it is to be a part of something bigger, you know, cause you're, you're just a part of something that's been going on for a lot longer than a lot of other things have. So, um, you know, there's some pride in that. And it's, it's nice to know that it's a, it is a sustainable thing that, you know, kids or people down, you know, down the road through time are going to be able to do this because it was actually managed correctly.
3: Absolutely. And, and to go to with having that, that seeing that that is changing because of them doing that, we don't see that here with the draggers on the offshore where they're killing the herring and all the bycatch. A lot of people don't understand how that actually works.
1: Yeah. Well, regulation is part of the problem with dragging. Um, what happens is they're forced to throw a lot of bycatch overboard. Um, and then that doesn't necessarily count towards the quota. What makes more sense to a lot of us is, well, those fish should be sold. Um, and then counted against quota, uh, instead of just throwing them away, you know, I mean, what good is that? They can be donated, you know, I mean, forget selling them. I mean, there's a lot of hungry people. Um, So when you're dumping over a bunch of fluke, or you're dumping over, you know, I mean, now some things are hardier than others. I've been on small scale draggers. Not every dragger is an evil dragger. Don't, don't, you know, get me wrong. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have friends that that are dragging off 42 foot boats and you know, their net may open up 30 feet, but they're dragging the same soft bottom every single time. Uh, They're not going over structure. They're not good. They don't want to get their nets in wrecks. You know what I mean? They don't want to get them in rock piles and stuff. So, um, I wouldn't put them in the same ball game as, as dragging, you know, dragging has got a bad name and and I, it's not one that I really am too fond of, but at the same time it needs to be looked at with a scalpel and not a sledgehammer. You know, there, right. there's, there's, um, cause they're very conscious too. You gotta understand. These guys spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and not just once they spend sometimes 30 grand just to get started for the season. Mm -hmm. Or uh, they'll have a NOAA regulated quota where they bought for like a million dollars. And at the time they bought it, they may had 200,000 pounds of of something. And then through the government whittling it away, they devalued what they paid that million dollars for for something that's only worth 30,000 pounds of catch. So there's a huge gamble in it in the first place. No fisherman wants to catch the last fish. It, it, it just doesn't make sense. It would be stupid because you're going to, if you're going to spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a regular basis, why would you want to put yourself out of business?
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and it, a lot of guys are vilified saying, Oh, they don't care. They're just ripping the place apart. Well, that's not necessarily true. Um, I think you have to weigh in the size of the boat, um, the size of the net, where they're fishing, and there's even been studies that show that some of these draggers are going over these bottoms where there was nothing going on. There was just uh, a lot of sediment, but putting the net through released a lot of nutrients into the water and actually drew species into that area that hadn't been there prior. So um, there is that element of it as well uh, to, to consider um, instead of blanket statement that they're all bad, you know, Um, even like I was scalloping this spring getting sea scallops and that's used by this big steel dredge with chains and all sorts of, it looks like a torture device. But when you really look at where you're dragging the dredge, it's over a sandy bottom, no structure. And if you look at the bycatch, you may get a few flounder, you may get a few porgy, but you know what? They, they swim away. You know, the, the the flounder, especially are very resilient. Uh, And I've seen that in dragging and with dredging that um, you're just they just going right over the deck and they're swimming right down to the bottom. Now, if they, you know, they don't make it past that, I can't tell you, but I can tell you that a majority of what I've seen gets delivered back into the water alive, unless it really gets pinched against things or, you know, that, that happens too. Um, Even dragging, we've pulled stripers up. And through a deck hose, we just revive them and send them right back off. So, and and you're talking a small enough operation where your nets not so big that you can actually give each fish this attention. You know, I mean, you're not you're not talking about putting five hundred thousand pounds of fish on board. You know, you're talking you know a few thousand pounds. So you can actually go through it and kind of oh, it's a nice fluke, you know, it's like a breeding, or a breeding striper. So I mean, you can actually save the fish. It's not like everything's going over dead. I think that's also a misconception.
3: Yeah, I think that misconception is huge where everybody's like, oh, they kill everything that they go through and so on and so forth. But people don't realize, like, the guys like right now that are fishing, uh, dragging close to us outside of Long Island Sound, they're fluke dragging. And those nets have big nets in them, and they don't suck up the squid. They don't suck up the whiting. They don't suck up a lot of the other things, and they're only literally targeting on the fluke. And all the other bycatch, they're selling off, like dogfish and all that. They're actually making it better because nobody else uses it. Like us, like Rod and Real guys, we don't do anything with the dogfish. We just let them go. And those things actually become more harm.
1: Oh yeah. And if you, and everyone's a fan of skates, right? You think you have a monster fluke and some wrapped up skate. Well, a dragger can go get, you know, six, eight, 10 barrels of skates and you are not going to have a shortage of, of skates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's just as many skates and dogfish sharks getting on your line <laughs> than ever before. So um, I think that's another misconception is that people don't look at the numbers of fish in real, relation to what's actually there. Um, people think, oh, no, they've got 500 fish. That's got to be most of them. Well, there's millions and millions and millions mm-hmm. of them. Um, and, and, and I think that needs to be taken into consideration as well as is the, uh, the overall number of the species that you're targeting and, and what's going on with that and, and uh, to really pinpoint. I mean, out west, there are pollock boats that might be mid-column. And they're looking at 30 fathoms of fish, you know, wow. you know, 30 fathoms thick of Pollock. And that's just one little ball of them. Um, you know, so what the dragger is getting like, it's like taking a, you know, a piece of paper and taking a ballpoint pen and drawing a line through that paper and, let's say a lot of that paper's all fish well that that's basically the percentage they're getting is that little tiny strip of it um so uh yeah i mean you really gotta look at numbers and, and look at variables but um the one downfall for that fishery is obviously pulling up the halibut because the halibut are also chasing bait around Halibut don't stay on the bottom a lot of people that's a misconception that there are a lot of times in mid-column um really Hunting, yeah, they're they're crazy fish, um, and, and so even the mid column they'll, they'll get sucked up. And and like I said, that goes that that hurts the sports fishermen. It hurts the longliners. It hurts the owner-operator uh, fishermen, mm-hmm. um, which are really the backbone of, of of these shoreline towns. I mean, I've had the opportunity to now work in towns from Washington to California to villages in Alaska to here in New England. And it is these owner-operator boats that are here, you know. The, the big company boats, you get some in Gloucester, you get some in Rockland, maybe Portland. But uh, even there, a majority of the boats you're seeing are owner-operator guys that they, are um, just getting enough to survive. You know, they're, they're not pulling giant swaths of fish out of the water, you know, like, like uh, as advertised on things like Sea Spiracy. Um, so I, I think you really, like I said earlier, you have to look at it with a scalpel, not a sledgehammer when it comes to judging a lot of these fisheries. So, and there's a lot of sustainable ones like the salmon, um, we might get a little flounder or two in the net and they, they, they don't die, but you know, they get thrown right back over. Um, And the rest of it is salmon because that's what's there. There is no other fish. (laughs) So basically that's all you're getting and they're going to die anyways. They're just going to go spawn and die. So um, it's not like you're taking them out of the, out of the game for for years, you know?
3: Yeah. And the other thing, a lot of people don't understand too, like going with like the prices, like as far as being a commercial fisherman, like how much money you actually make, like on the salmon. Right. So what's it, what's it a pound right now up there?
1: Uh, okay, well, uh, we will get a dollar twenty-five base price a pound. <laughs> so um, that's going to turn around and sell. Now, if you're talking not previously frozen sockeye salmon, mm-hmm. you're talking $14, 15 bucks a pound in that the crazy. store. Um, yeah, well, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, it is. <laughs> But, but nice. um, it, it gets it, it gets frustrating. Like last mm-hmm. year, we got seventy cents. We got 70 cents a pound and they had a record profit year. The buyers did.
3: So crazy. And you're the guy out there putting your life on the line. And they'll say COVID. Oh, it's COVID. Oh, we had to do
1: this. Oh, it's COVID. We can't pay you anymore, but we're going to go make more money than we've ever made off what you're selling us. You know, it's like, so it's frustrating. Um, this year they made better to us. You know, they, they understood that, you know, they kind of put us in a position last year. So, um, it comes and goes like the year before that, we got a dollar 56 a pound, you know? So it, it, you take the good and the bad, you know, that's what they're saying. That's how it goes when you wear rubber clothes, you know? Um, and, and the other thing with salmon, a lot of people don't realize is we fish three quarters of the season, not knowing what we're getting. Mm -hmm. They don't give us our market price until just about all the fish are caught. So that's another way they have us. Uh, we can't go on strike because you only have that time the fish are coming. And then we just fish and hope that they're going to give us a good price at the end of the season. It, it's kind of ridiculous. This year, for the first time in 25 years, they actually, one company, because Peter Pan, which is one of the major companies, they were just bought by uh, a new group of people. And they wanted to be different and they wanted to, you know, uh, have the spotlight shine on them. So they announced a price preseason, which is unheard of. Wow. And that was announced at a dollar 10, but even then with the other companies coming in saying, Oh, we'll give you more. So everyone, it, it kind of helps push the, uh, our price up by having some internal competition between the big boys. Wow. So, um, that's a good thing, yeah, honestly.
3: Kinda,
1: yeah, it, it is. It really is. And it lets you know what you're fishing for. You know, um, you can, Really uh, be deflated and, and, and have morale driven down when you're thinking you're only going to get 70, 80 cents a pound, um, especially this year when we're getting our asses kicked. I mean, it was just a brutal year weather wise. So
3: uh,
1: it's nice to know you're, you're going to make a little something off of it.
3: I think there's just so many misconceptions with that. Like as far as the money goes, like, like how much you actually get, like I know like striped bass, for example, in years past, some guys would get a dollar to $3 and this year it's $6 a pound in the hole in the round. Like it's, it's good to hear, but like you, and and a lot of people don't understand either is that I don't know how it goes with the salmon or the other stuff, but like, like when you're commercial rod and reel fishing, you don't even know, like you send it off to a buyer, and then they don't even they don't even tell you the price until they send you a check two weeks later.
1: Yeah, and the big reason for that is auctioning. Um, so we we did that a lot with the scallops. So basically, you can do a couple of things. Uh, we sold uh, off straight off the dock, dock sales, um, and we kept all the money. So we were getting eighteen to twenty bucks a pound uh, for ourselves. Now, the other option is, let's say you don't want to spend the time sitting at the dock and selling your scallops, then you send them to auction, and then you have a bunch of factors there. So, you get those big boats out of New Bedford that that go scalloping, and they're going on 10-11 day trips. So, they, uh, let's say they come into port, and you happen to be dropping off your dayboat scallops there, which there's, we'll talk about the differences in that. But, um, if you happen to drop your scallops off the same day as one of those big giant new Bedford boats, well, you're going to get swept under the rug. And because there's so much, uh, being brought in, then you're going to get a lower price for that. So it's, it's definitely a gamble. Uh, the other thing that should be known about the scalloping is you get those 10, 11 day trip boats. Well, they're bringing back what's called dry scallops. Um, which means they add a sodium phosphate to the scallop, which gives it that white color if you see that, the dry scallops in the store. Where us dayboat guys are bringing untreated scallops that are fresh that day, and they have an almond kind of opaque look to them. And the taste is just uh, miles and miles better than, than the treated ones. Um, so as a consumer, it's also good to know these things because then that way instead of going to stop and shop you'll go to the stonington docks and find the day scallops there because you're going to get such a better quality product um i mean it's noticeably different um it's worth the trip to the stonington docks or or wherever you may want to go um to go to their sea chest like stonington dock has what's called a sea chest where you can go in um, and it's kind of an honor system, but they have a credit card machine there. And then you can get monk fish or whatever the local fair is, you know, whatever's coming in. Um, and you're, you're no, I mean, you can see the boat it came off of. Um, and, uh, these are local guys and, and you're supporting local people and, uh, and you know, you're going to get a product that, you know, it's not farm graze and crap added to it. And, you know, you're, you're getting a real deal. And those um, are coming so off
3: the I day, the day boats.
1: Correct. Yeah. Day boats, um, that are coming right in and they're processing them right there. And then they're, they're sold right there. So, um, you know, you're going through way less hands and, uh, you can feel good that you're getting a product that, you know, isn't mislabeled, you know, they'll say, Oh, this was us caught when it was really farmed in China. You're not going to get that at the docks. Um, you're getting the, you're getting the real deal and, and you can definitely taste the difference the thing is a lot of the consumers don't realize that you can go to Stonington to do this. Um, and then even on the East coast, what I've noticed having been to Alaska and fishing the West coast is like with salmon, uh, out here, people are just happy to get salmon. They don't even care what the name of it is. And, and then it's, it's mostly farm raised Atlantic salmon. Mm-hmm. These pets that these fish farms are in devastate the ecosystems they're loaded with sea lice, which get on other fish and, and destroy natural uh, salmon runs. Like if you look at the, uh, the big dilemma right now the, on the west side is the Fraser River, which runs up the Canada the Canadian side, but then into Washington, Seattle, and Puget Sound. Well, the Canadians have all these fish farms all over the place. And the problem is these pens are alongside the natural runs, where the natural salmon are coming in. So if you have escapement out of these farms, you're getting weird crossbreeding going on, you're getting the sea lice. Not only that, um, the meat is dyed. So that pink the orangey f- flesh that you're seeing from the farm raised isn't even natural. It's what's added in their food. Um, and, and then you have the slurry from the processing, which goes back in the, the ocean there and it just creates dead zones. Um, and consumers don't know about this stuff. They don't think about it. You know, they, they, mm-hmm. oh, well, I'll just pay eight ninety nine for this farm raised, you know, Atlantic salmon instead of 11 or twelve ninety nine for a wild caught sockeye um, or king or, or, or what have you. And, and um, they don't really know why, you know, but if you really saw how the sausage is made, you'd probably, you know, think twice, you know, about getting that farm shrimp or the tilapia, which is garbage and, just all this stuff that they're, they're selling from these unregulated countries um, with slave labor. And we have a stake in that too, because they're driving down the price for us. So we're out here, real deal. And then it's being flooded with garbage from uh, who knows where uh, under who knows what kind of regulations where the U S fishery is the highest regulated, most science-based fishing in the world. Um, and it's not perfect there, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, could be improved upon. And that comes right down to also research. Like you no, know, will say, Oh, there's no cod. Well, there's plenty of cod. What happened is they've had a search grid that they've been doing their surveys on since 1970 something. Um, the water temperatures in that particular grid had gone up by a few degrees. So the cod had moved more offshore. Well, instead of changing their survey to where the cod are, they just keep it to where they left and then tell us there's none around. So it's an easy way to just keep them from being fished really. Um, uh, then they're also doing these trawl surveys with, over powered, 200 foot long boats that weren't designed for dragging in the first place. And they're not even dragging correctly. Uh, so you get a guy, a real commercial guy right next to the research vessel. His nets are loaded with cod while the research vessel has zero cod because their net never even got to the bottom of the ocean. So there's a lot of, to be desired when it comes to getting proper data. And the problem with data is everyone can construe it however they want. Data can be extrapolated to look uh, in favor for anybody. So it makes it difficult. Um, not only that, they do what's called vetted data, where let's say we're out there fishing, we're there hands-on day in, day out. We can tell you what's in the water, but they won't accept our information because it is not science-vetted data to them. So it doesn't count. Um, And that's their way of controlling the numbers that they're counting, because if they won't take our numbers into consideration, then they're taking their weird numbers and and just using them. So it's, it's really confusing and it's really uh, not fair. And, And, you know, it depends on what you're talking about. Like I said, salmon is, in a, in a good way with the research and the science where in new England uh, and in other areas it isn't and there are other factors too like the salmon are you know it's one species coming in at a million millions at a time where um you know things like fluke and sea bass and to they're not really doing that they're you know they're not driving this this there's not a huge force of fish that makes it easier to count you know they're they're more all over the place so um to be fair it's a lot harder to study a a ground fish or a fish that's just there most of the year, um, than it is to get a real defined run, like a salmon run. So to be fair, it is a lot easier to do research on a salmon.
0: Um,
1: but there is a lot of advances too. Like they can take a scale from a salmon and they can take that scale and tell you what river it was born in, where it was heading back to spawn. They can also tell you how many years it spent in fresh water and how many years it spent in salt water. um, they can tell you all that. Uh, so there's a lot more information coming to us for the salmon than there are uh, other species of fish.
5: Wow.
3: Yeah, because you're not doing that with a fluke. You're not doing that with a sea bass. So you're able to really define and see exactly what's going on in that salmon. That, that salmon's life.
1: Yeah, and you're looking at the salmon. Now, here's the other thing, too. They're going to put as much research into a fish as its market value is so salmon's were millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. So it makes sense for the state to spend money to do that science because the returns are that big mm-hmm. where you take these common ground fish that there isn't really a big commercial return on. So it's hard for them to justify spending that money on research. Um, and, and then you're also some big differences that we're seeing success in sustainable fishing is state run fisheries versus NOAA run fisheries. So let's say in Alaska, for example, on the West coast, Oregon, California, Washington, granted, they have a lot more coastline than we have in the Northeast and they don't share water space like we do. Um, so they can self-regulate. So California can tell NOAA to, to piss off. No, we're going to handle this. Uh, Alaska can tell NOAA, stay away from our salmon. We've got this. Don't come in here and mess it up. So the state run fisheries are much more successful because Noah is not involved.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and that, uh, it, it might be a controversial statement, but the proof is in the pudding. We're talking a record salmon run, um, and, and other species in state-run waters, you're seeing the same thing. You're seeing good numbers coming back. You're seeing sustainable things happening, and and um, people are making money, and the sports guys are getting theirs too. So, um, why? Well, that could be there's a million reasons why, but I can tell you that's what's happening. <laughs>
3: that's nuts. I, I think it's so crazy, and it makes so much sense because you see you see it across the board when Noah gets involved with a lot of this stuff.
1: Yeah, you really do. And, and I do understand you're, you're talking about a lot of shared waters, like Gulf of Maine contains Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and, and Maine. Um, Long Island Sound is obviously an attachment to New York and Connecticut. Um, Rhode Island such a small state. You know, you're talking Massachusetts and, and Connecticut involved with them. You have New Jersey, put them in the mix. And you know, then you get these disagreements like what happened in New Jersey a couple of years back with the fluke where mm-hmm. they were saying, Oh, we're not going to honor Noah's new, new reg. So Noah's like, okay, fine. They're not going to go after New Jersey. They're just going to kill Long Island sounds quota guess, yep. because there's, well, we can't really get it back from New Jersey. So now we have to take it away from everybody else. And that's also a problem is the infighting that is created amongst states where we can't band together as a bunch of States and say enough is enough because they have us fighting each other just so our charter guys can have enough clients to make it worthwhile to go catch the, whatever fish for that regulation. Um, so yeah, it's, it's tough. It really is. And I spent some time with New England fishery management, um, as on the advisory panel and, and I would see the infighting firsthand, you know, you got, uh, say, okay, we're either going to take a fishery and we're going to open it up earlier in the spring or later in the fall. Well, you got the main guys, they don't even have ice out yet. So they can't even get out there to, to get on those earlier spring fishery. So it's not doing anything for them, but the mass guys are like, Oh, we, we depend on these guys coming from New Jersey and New York to come to our charters. And if we can only catch three haddock and not five, then it's going to ruin our business. And you know, everyone's got something to say. Mm-hmm. And then And then even then, if you can come up an agreement with New England fishery management, then it goes to the Atlantic States management. Now, the Atlantic fisheries management is the only one with actual governing power, uh, where New England fishery management and the other managements don't. So we'll take a draft amendment that we'll come up with in New England and say, okay, well, this seems to be fair for everyone involved. They'll send it to Washington. And then Washington gets a hold of it and says, oh, that's cute. No, that's not how it's going to go at all. And reason being, because you have the big boys lobbying and whoever's lobbying is going to get what they want. Mm -hmm. So then you sit there and scratch your head wondering why you're even doing it in the first place. But um, (laughs) yeah, it gets uh, gets frustrating. It really, really does.
3: Especially when politics gets involved with that kind of stuff
1: yeah and you're talking fishing landlords you're talking guys who own permits that are don't even touch the water and they're leasing them out and the guys leasing them out can't make any money because of the amount of money they're leasing them for it's really it's a mess it really is um and they're trying to make improvements upon that to get rid of uh fish landlords and and that kind of thing and, and i really hope they do um you know you get you get stories like the cod father and and things like that and and um and it it really just hurts the owner operator who spends a fortune just to stay afloat you know mm-hmm. um, and the real backbone of, of what these shoreline towns are about and we're not just talking you know oceanic I mean there are fisheries there are plenty of fisheries in the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Salt Lake City has a shrimp fisheries in Salt Lake there's a shrimp fishery. Flathead Lake Montana has a whitefish fishery. Um, the perch fishery in the great lakes, you're talking a lot of money and a lot of port towns throughout the country that could easily go under, uh, with the wrong regulation or or letting huge companies come in and, and clean up.
3: Absolutely. I totally agree with you, Jesse. I really do. That actually kind of brings me into my, my, my next segment of question. Um, what would you change in, the, in your outdoor industry? Uh,
1: well, the government regulation on the dragging, uh, where instead of throwing everything overboard, it should be allocated for and sold or even donated. Um, I think that's the one big thing. It also gives draggers a bad name um, when you've video after video of them throwing dead loss overboard. And you know what? They're just as mad about it as the, as the person watching the video. Believe me, these captains are furious that they're having to do this. Um, they have some of the biggest stakes in, in population surviving. Um, so it, it's important. Uh, the other thing I think, you know, talk about landlords, we got to get rid of them. Um, and I, uh, it's hard to say what other things because every little fishery's got little components of it that should be different. Um, so like I said, you got to really examine each and every one to really make changes. I think the, to kind of take down the fight between the sports fishing and the commercial fishing is also to put things in perspective to what's actually happening. You know, um, like let's say last year, for example, the sports fishermen went three times over quota on black sea bass than the commercial guys did. And they actually took commercial guys quota away because of what sportsmen were catching. And a lot of that could have been avoided by people just popping the damn bladders in those fish. So they swim down to the bottom instead of, you know, you go out to the fishing grounds in some wreck and you're just seeing hundreds and hundreds of black sea bass floating around the top because no one's popping their little bladders. They can't swim down to the bottom again. And, and you're talking about a lot of dead loss there. Um, so I, I think education is the big thing, you know. Um, I, it, instead of blindly shooting from the hip and blaming each other and, and this, that, and the other thing, and there's plenty of ways that we can all work on this together. Um, and, and I think I would also make some changes to the tuna. Being in Gloucester up here in Mass, um, I got to see a little bit of what's happening with the tuna fishing. Um, this year... They opened it, I think, April 1st, or no, June 1st, and they said you could take three giants a day instead of one.
2: They went up Um, to three?
1: Yeah, they went up to three (sighs) uh, on the federal level. (sighs) But the problem with that is, number one, the opening day is June 1st. These fish are not fattened up on anything.
3: Nope.
1: Nope. on June first. So the market value is gonna be horrible. It's gonna be like three bucks, you know, and then they lie on those T V shows that, oh, they got nine bucks a pound. I get that No they didn't. <laughs> I've i been sitting right at the dock and watching them get the two and three dollars a pound. Um, and also a tuna permit's thirty five bucks. You wanna be a tuna fisherman? There you go. <laughs> it's a pretty easy one to get into. Um, so yeah, I think there's a little mismanagement going on. They probably could have waited a little longer to start season, let them fatten up a little bit, increase the market value. Um, and then the reward of getting three fish a day is going to be taken away. Mm-hmm. Mark my words. They do not give you something without taking twice as much away. Absol- that is,
3: that's a huge problem, though, a- bring, bringing it back real quick on those those fish not being fattened up. And what happens when that happens is, when them fish don't have fat in them, then they then fill the quota and then knock off the quota so that you can't even fish for the fish when they're actually at their best value.
1: Exactly. You know, maybe that helps the fish for the population, but it doesn't do anything for anybody except weekend warriors that want to go say they have a tuna and have a picture taken with it. Um, you know, and and it's too bad because it's, 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 uh, now this is of course my opinion, this mm-hmm. isn't fact. This isn't science based. This isn't official. And this is just what I'm seeing. The reaction I'm seeing from other fishermen and what they're getting for market value. Now, right now it's doing okay. They're getting five, six bucks a pound. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that, that, that doesn't have to be that way. And next year, hold on to your pants because if there's all sorts of catch or they they feel that there's underreported catch, then next year you're going to, you won't, you won't, you won't get what you got this year. You know? So, uh, that's the problem too. That where I was going back to like commercial guys don't want to fish the last fish. No. We gotta do it smart. So more money can be made off the fish with less fish being taken from the stock. Yep. Um, you know, and that's the name of the game
3: right there. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause you're only hurting yourselves and not being able to make a check the next year by taking the last fish, honestly. Yeah.
1: And then even the sporties are affected because then, um, you know, because it it trickles down. So basically if the commercial guys can't do it, well, the sporty guys aren't going to be able to either. Um, you know, it's all going to go hand in hand. Um, you know, it's not one guy versus the other in this case, you know, you think, oh, it's the commercial guys or it's uh, it's all these Googans as the, as the commercial guys call this weekend (laughs) You know, so I mean, it, it's it's a little of everybody. Well, guess what? Whether you're a Guggen or a commercial guy, you all got your lines in the same water, so in the same fish.
3: <laughs> I, I think one of my biggest problems with with the outdoor industry as a whole is that we, as sportsmen and outdoorsmen, are the first to point fingers at other outdoorsmen and sportsmen, which is mm-hmm. always a problem. They don't they don't band together and try and fix things. They just want to point fingers at each other and it was their fault it was their fault it was the draggers it was the sport fishermen it was the weekend war you know what i'm saying and it's just if they just band together and work together then things would move forward a lot smoother i feel like
1: in a perfect world
3: that'd be great but
1: uh, to give you an example um massachusetts shut down their state lobstering this past season uh for migration of white whales They're saying, Oh, we're killing the right whales. Well, that's funny because we only have two entanglements in 20 years and they both lived. Um, yeah, it's such a problem that we need to shut down the state waters. So the draggers love this because all of our lobster gear is all over their haddock grounds. So take us out of the game and bang, they can go drag wherever they want. So they're not going to stand with us against the closure Um, and and then we don't want them around. So there's ever a year where all those draggers aren't allowed here. Good. Keep them out. (laughs) So it's, so it's, it's a fight either way, because here's the thing. We also lose a lot of money because of the draggers. So like, so some draggers are nice. So we'll have our lobster gear out in a certain area and a dragger will call us up. Hey, I'm going to be on these marks. So if you have any gear there, get it out of the way. See, the thing about the draggers is they go home with their gear at night. We don't. So we'll go out, and we're looking at a 20 trawl. So we have trawls are about 20 traps in each trawl with a long line. We have the buoy on each end. And these draggers will come in, and they'll take three or four trawls. You're know, you talking 120 for each pot. You're talking a few grand for the line, the buoys, everything. So, and you only get... 800 so if they take out 60 70 traps 80 traps you know that's not only do you have to replace it but that's that much less bugs coming in and it also adds the waste in the water so they're worried about entanglements and and just plastic or whatever in the water well that's contributing to that as well so um it's a dance out there it it is and and it's and it's too bad you know but it's it's just unfortunately the way it is and, and how it's going to go
3: that's fishing as a whole man well jesse i want to kind of close this up this is my last question and that is what drives you outdoors
1: oh everything just being out there um i've done the indoor stuff but when i'm out there and i'm seeing such biodiversity and in, in all the creatures the sun rises and even the camaraderie on the deck of a boat, you know, it, it's, it's all about, And it, it's it, the answer is the question itself. It's being outdoors. I mean, you are not going to see things like grizzly bears and Wolverines and beluga whales feasting on the. And, and, you know, just the number of really cool stuff that I've gotten to see out there. Um, and it all starts with a sunrise and a sunset and everything that's in between it, it. If it's in you to, you know, that you'll never want to work an office job again. You know,
3: it's it's so true, man. And it's, and it's, it's incredible to watch you chase that dream. You know, we all have our own dreams and some of us able to chase them and do those things and watching you go from state to state and do different things. And it it's absolutely incredible. Honestly, Jesse.
1: Well, I appreciate it. And, you know, I like everyone to know, uh, especially, you know, younger guys, we need you. We need the. We need people. And it pays pretty well. I mean, I've done a lot of different things from radio to construction. And I'm doing the best I've ever done uh, in this industry. Um, there's jobs everywhere from Alaska to Florida to New England. Heck, I can get a guy on a boat in Stonington right now. Um, and it's that really there, if, if you think you got it in you and, and, um, you're not afraid to go, you know, put yourself out there and living in your car, or whether it be staying on a boat for a month or, you know, any of these factors, if you think you can handle that, Hey, leave that check to check job. And, and, you know, maybe, you know, not only get a job, but I mean, heck, I've been in Alaska four summers in a row. Now people pay $10,000 a clip to go to Alaska. I have my flight paid for, my food paid for. I go catch twenty-eight inch rainbow trout in the Magnat River with my fishing pole, and, and for free, you know. So and enjoy I mean, it. Oh yeah. So if you're looking, if you think I oh, would never afford a trip to Alaska, well, get yourself on a gill net, or you'll go to Alaska anytime you want. That's right, <laughs> and, it,
3: and it's out there for the for the taking. You just got to go out there and do it,
1: Jesse. Yeah, can you... really is. go ahead. Oh, no, I'm just going to say, yeah, you just got to go do it. I mean, it's really that simple.
3: Absolutely. And if, you know, can you just share your information if you want to be found uh, where people can kind of find you? Yeah,
1: sure. I'm on Facebook, you know, just Jesse Roach. And, and then J E S S E R O C H E or on Instagram, Jesse uh, underscores at the, that's, yeah, that's the line on the bottom, Jesse underscore Roach underscore fishing um, is the Instagram. And then if anyone would like to get involved or would like to learn more, or if they have a misconception, they think, you know, it doesn't make sense. And if I know the answer, I'd be glad to, you know, help. And, and, you know, I want to promote uh, any kind of sustainable fishing. And, and like I said, we need young guys. We need the in women. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's Bristol Bay boats that are entire boats of women. Um, and they're down to five-year-olds, four-year-olds because there's no OSHA. There is nothing like that. This is a handed down, uh, business. So if you you got a 10 year old that wants to go out and ban lobsters, it can happen. Um, it really is an untouched, uh, career by a lot of folks. And especially nowadays when captain after captain can't find anyone to go fishing with.
3: Absolutely. Well, we thank you jesse for doing this man we really appreciate you for taking the time and coming on here and kind of telling your story and you know i really look forward to seeing what 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 else uh, ventures you got coming forth
1: thanks man yeah i'm definitely uh i think right now i'll be in maine and uh just endure a cold winter and uh i i'm kind of in talks with trident seafoods to to maybe do some work with them um during the uh, king crab season and and back to the salmon season too. So I might, uh, end up out in Dutch Harbor, you know, sooner or later working with all those boats to see on TV. And, and, um, so we'll see sky's the limit, but it, it, I'll tell you one one thing too. If you got your head on straight, you know, you don't have a drug problem and, and you got a license and no court dates, uh, you can move up very quickly. You can, you can be running a boat in a matter of a few years because, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys, there's no one to hand this, this business to. Uh, and, um, if you have your head on straight and you, you, you can really get into it and be trusted, then, uh, help people put the steering wheel in your hand. So it's also something you can move up in very quickly.
3: Absolutely. Well, everybody go and follow Jesse, kind of see what he's got going on. And if you want to get into fishing, um, you know, reach out to him or go and find a local boat, but for everyone else out there, man, we want to thank Jesse for doing this and for everybody else. Thanks for taking the ride right here on the outdoor drive.